0: This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Thomas Bingham, who works on a variety of issues as a grassroots trainer at Americans for Prosperity. One of those issues is the PRO Act, the legislation that involves independent workers in the gig economy. Is this legislation, which already passed the House, good for the freelance gig worker, or something that can destroy them. Also, I wonder if climate change is what we should be really focusing on. And now, the nexus. Thomas Bingham is a senior grassroots trainer at Americans for Prosperity, a public policy organization. One of the issues he works on regards the PRO Act, a bill that passed the House of Representatives a few months ago, which advocates say attempts to protect independent workers, freelancers, or gig workers from being exploited by their employers. This protection can take the form of allowing workers to unionize. Detractors of the bill say it will have an adverse effect on the gig economy, however, making it difficult to work as a freelancer. Thomas Bingham, welcome to The Nexus.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Tom, tell me
0: about this bill and your stance on it.
1: Sure. So let's talk about why I'm so passionate about it. Um, this actually starts back. I'm originally California native. Uh, I work pretty heavily in the gig economy, um, work with Uber, Lyft, uh, Toro, which is a car renting company. I have all sorts of gigs. I can go on a very long rant about it, but it kind of stems back from the fact that there is an ongoing debate whether or not people should be free to determine how they want to work, when they want to work, how they use their assets and and leverage that. And there's kind of this temptation by a lot of people that I've seen all across the, the country to have the government kind of intervene and just kind of get in the way of what people want to do. And this starts as far back as I remember when I first started driving for Uber back in 2015. And I thought this was the greatest thing. I remember back in the day, if you're stranded somewhere, uh, getting a cab in California was unrealistic. A lot of times you call a friend, hopefully they picked up the phone or you would have to crash somewhere. uh, And this new technology came out and I thought it was amazing. And as I started getting more involved in the public policy process, I started noticing that... All across the country, there was a reaction to a lot of this technology where started seeing places like Nevada, uh, Uber drivers were actually arrested and had their cars confiscated at the airport, uh, started seeing uh, a few years later, Airbnb, um, uh, people that rented out their rooms or their house being attacked, even in places where, uh, I mean, in states where a lot of this technology came from, like California, uh, there's a story not too long ago in Santa Monica, where there was a guy who was charged with 10 misdemeanors. For just renting out his room, he just—it wasn't someone who was making a ton of money. He was just trying to put food on the table, and this is something that's been ongoing. So originally, this bill let's go even before uh, the PRO Act. Um, Have you heard of AB five? I have not. So AB five is California's version of the PRO Act, and it introduces a ABC test, pretty much to determine whether or not you can legally be an independent contractor. Problem is with this ABC test, it is so restrictive. That when the law passed, uh, it pretty much outlawed almost all independent contractors. So if you're the Santa Claus at the mall, you can't be an independent contractor. If you're a freelance journalist, you cannot be a freelance journalist, which we even saw uh, reporters from Vox News. They um, they were advocating for AB5. They thought it would protect a bunch of workers. I mean, their intentions were good, but then they were surprised that all the uh, Vox News reporters in California were let go because you cannot be an independent contractor.
0: Hmm. How, what, what is this ABC test? Do you remember the components of it
1: or, or uh, explain it a bit more? Um, sure. I I, I, couldn't, I can't get into details. so I don't have it in front of me, but it just outlines the criteria of, um, so what they don't want to have, and a lot of the ABC test is geared towards Uber and Lyft. They don't want to have a company full of independent contractors. That's the whole reason why they have this test in place. And a lot of it is you have to pretty much not be directly related to the company, but by the time you're done, it's almost impossible for any company to meet that. And even if they could meet that, the fines and penalties are so severe that it creates kind of a chilling effect. There's no, it makes it impossible to hire an independent contractor. Hmm. Um, and then this passed in California, this has been an ongoing fight where there was Prop 22 that came up that stripped parts of the bill. Um, That fight is still ongoing legally. They actually, I think, a low, uh, California court just overturned that voter approved amendment and that's still ongoing in the legal system. Uh, but people thought that AB5 was such a success, even though it threatened millions of workers, that now they want to pass something similar at the federal level.
0: Let's break this down, though. Why is it threatening them? What What is actually, why is it literally telling people they can't work for uber lyft i i'm just not sure how it gets to the point of it's it's sure detrimental
1: I, i mean if you look at the other side i think the best uh the best source i guess you could see to get that narrative is you can read a lot of articles about this from the la times and if you read some of the articles, they're pretty eye-opening. Um, what they're saying is that the small, you know, the the small person, the, the person's being taken advantage of by these big tech companies, and that somehow we need to save this person by having more of a top-down approach, by making it illegal to be an independent contractor, having all sorts of uh, labor protections. Because if you're an independent contractor uh, from the, from someone with their point of view, they think it's insane because not only do you, is there no minimum wage, you can actually make negative dollars. So to them, they've seen it. If there was even an article I read not too long ago that said it was almost comparable to like slave wages. Oh, And they're like, hey, we're protecting that from their point of view. They're like, hey, we're protecting these people. We're we're, we know these laws work. So we want to make sure that no one uh, everyone has to be covered under this law and no exceptions. And the problem is with the narrative, you know, as they say, good intention. They may have good intentions, but the results are devastating because a lot of people that are independent contractors, especially when you go to the gig economy. Maybe they don't want to work that nine to five job. Uh, from my point of view, I want to be able to make money on the side where I can. A few years ago, I had some unexpected medical bills. I was able to go out, make some money, had no impact on me. Um, just this last year, I actually, had to spend a lot of money to help my parents uh, get out California. So they were really happy about that. I needed to help fix their house. They had some bills that they needed help with. And if it wasn't for the gig economy, there's no way I would have been able to take such a large financial risk. Um but with the gig economy, it was not really much of an impact. I was able to help them. Now they just moved to North Carolina. Thank God that was a, especially during the pandemic, that was a nightmare, just getting across the country and just finding a place to rent. Um, but yeah, that that's something that's ongoing. But let me even explore this further. You,
0: you mentioned that you wouldn't want to work a nine to five job. I can't imagine that if you were driving for Uber, they would force you to work the hours of nine to five. Or how how does it work? I've never actually known anyone who has done this. I mean, is it a thing where you could choose your own hours now and this would make it that you were forced into like an eight hour shift? How does that? Yeah.
1: So like right now, if let's say I don't like, let's just say hypothetically, whether it's Uber, Lyft, via any of the companies, I don't like what a company's doing. Let's say they have bad service. Maybe they're not paying me enough. I can just delete the app. And if enough people do it, doesn't matter how big the company is, the company disappears. And how it works right now is let's say after this interview, I want to go make some money because I want to go take a flight somewhere. I can just turn on the app right after this, hop in my car and go pick people up. And especially in the DC area, there's a shortage of drivers. The amount of money you make, uh, especially just this last holiday, I drove for one of the days and I think it came out after the bonuses and made about $50 an hour. Hmm. Uh, that's even after gas cars really good at gas. That helps quite a bit, but yeah, that's pretty good money. And I mean, I did have to deal with a lot of traffic, a lot of people that were going out to Adams Morgan, other parts of DC. And, uh, but I mean, 50 bucks an hour is pretty good. And in know, how many hours, if I may that, ask. that was about nine hours.
0: Wow. So you are saying that you made $450 that shift. If you were in this, if this Bill in Congress passes, you wouldn't be able to make that much.
1: You I would know. only have a max at some point. Not only that, I would, the hours have to be fixed because they would have to pay me per hour. So all the flexibility I like about the gig economy would disappear. And this goes beyond just Uber and Lyft. I mean, I talked about some of the other gig economy um, where I rent out my car, that might be restricted. Uh, people that maybe want to do DoorDash or people that just want to just rent out Airbnb. Um, and there's a whole That's a whole nother side of the debate that comes into like protectionism, local state laws, which we really go down that rabbit hole, but we'll just stick with the PRO Act. But yeah, that's that's something that's ongoing. And then, as I mentioned before, it doesn't just affect the gig economy. It goes beyond that. If you're a contractor, a truck driver, uh, independent journalist, I mean, it's just the idea is you know, from my point of view, I want people I want people to decide whether or not they want to be a full-time employee, part-time, an independent contractor, someone who wants to embrace uh, just maybe just have passive income. It kind of goes back to this book I'm obsessed with that I read back in college called The Four Hour Work Week. Um, and I think it came out like 10, 12 years ago and it was a it was a radical idea. And here we are now where it's a little bit more normal where you can telework and have flex hours and you can kind of determine whether or not you want to be in a conventional, you know, nine to five or full time or just say, you know what, it's not for me for at least for a while.
0: So hmm. interesting. Okay. But on the other side of the coin, one might say, that's great, Tom, you, you made 450 on that shift or you can work whenever you want, but you've got no benefits. You've got no health insurance from this. You've got no whatever comes with, with a regular job shouldn't you be able to have that?
1: Well, if you look at how this how this works is it gets a lot of people that maybe didn't have access to that type of, to even any type of work into the economy. And what we want to do is that's a whole separate argument where, you know, we have a broken healthcare system. We need to address that. When it comes to insurance, we need to fix that. Uh, but this... This actually helps so many people just, I mean, what you're doing is if we have something like the PRO Act or something like AB5 fully implemented in California, you're taking away hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people's jobs. So even if they didn't have insurance or they're struggling to get insurance, they definitely won't now if they can't pay their bills, they can't put food on the table. I mean, you're pushing people into full-blown unemployment Uh, and this is definitely not a time to do it. And when I talk about a lot of these policy issues, the other thing I mention is um, a lot of policy mistakes are made by people not seeing the seen and unseen effects of a economic policy. So let's say if we get rid of Uber and let's just say we, we make it full time. We drive up the prices of, you know, of everything that we do and prices already on the way up. Most people are like, Oh, what's the big deal? Let's say if someone in Arlington just wants to get right into DC, who cares if they pay more? But most people don't realize most of the clients that pick up are not in Arlington. They're actually in like East DC Anacostia. So it's people that don't have access to public transit They might have disabilities. They might have, they might not be unable to get a car. And if you cut off or just make it so expensive to pick people up, you're going to be cutting off economic opportunity and transportation to part of this area that desperately needs it the most.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's, um, one of the things, though, about the PRO Act that I've, I've researched is it seems like it's, it's really a concerted push for gig workers, no matter what the organization is, to unionize. And before we get into that, what do you
1: think of unions in general? I mean, I'm not anti-union. When it comes to unions, I, I'm fine with it as long as there's voluntary cooperation. People are able to freely go and no one's being forced to pay fees. And, you know, that, that's kind of where I stand. And as long as there's no coercion, anything else, people are free to join, whether it's a union or association. Uh, the, when I have a problem with it is when people are forced into it or, or even worse, forced to pay fees to be, not be part of an organization. Cause it's not just the economic impact, loss of economic opportunity, but I see it as a first amendment issue. We don't want to force people to be part of an organization. We don't want to force people, let's say, on the left to join you know, an organization that's center-right and vice versa. It's I think it's extremely unfair.
0: Should there
1: be unions,
0: though, at all for these kinds of organizations? I mean, isn't there a value in collective bargaining that could bring better benefits to just the
1: general person? Well, we can look at states like right to work, right? Uh, there's a reason why the population in these states are going up. And in states that don't have a right to work, there people are fleeing, and it's beyond just the pandemic; it's just economic opportunity. There's a reason why I left California to go to Virginia, and it wasn't for the weather, or the food. I mean, food's okay here, but it was just the fact I can go here, throw a rock, and find a job. Where back home, it was just a struggle just to kind of get through a state, and then deal with all the taxes and fees and everything else. Uh, but when it comes to collective bargaining, if it was so popular, you'd see a lot more unions. Uh, but when it comes to gig economy, I think. Uh, independent contractors do a really good job holding the companies accountable. Because like I said, like tomorrow, I don't like what Uber does. I delete it. And then other companies start popping up. I mean, that's how Lyft popped up because, you know, some people didn't like everything that Uber was doing. And people were like, hey, the, you know, I, maybe I can make more money and I can get tips and I have more control over things. And I think that is probably one of the best ways. But if someone wants to join... A union or association—that's their—that's their right to do so. I think another example I think of is in Tennessee, they have uh, teacher associations, and let's say you're not forced to be part of a union in Tennessee, uh, but you can join. Let's say you like one association because they more align with your views, or maybe they're just better at getting you better pay. Um, it, it just comes back to freedom. Like we shouldn't be forcing people into collective bargaining because it's really unfair. And this is a common argument. They're like, well, when it comes to collective bargaining, this organization helped you get better pay. But in reality, did they, maybe you have a more competitive advantage. Maybe you can make more money, but because of the contracts or the collective bargaining, you can't, or you can't get promoted. So we want to maximize individual liberty, but we want to make sure if, uh, no one's being forced to any organization or fees.
0: I get it. I understand all this. And I can see the the flexibility. What's disconcerting to me, though, is it appears statistically that our economy as it's set up is becoming more of a gig economy. I'm not just talking about the side jobs and the things, the freelancing. I'm talking about traditional, quote unquote, regular businesses that are just saying, you know, we don't want to pay benefits anymore. We want everything to be on contractors and independent things. Isn't that problematic?
1: Well, I mean, part of the problem is there's so many barriers just in the workplace in general. There's a There might be a temptation in that, but I think the real push for that is a lot of people like millennials or younger that maybe don't want to be tied down as much, not just to an employer, but to a location. I mean, especially with the pandemic, there's been a huge exit out of places like New York. Uh, I think there's briefly an exit out of DC, but there there are people coming back. Uh, A lot of my friends in California have pretty much fled to Texas and Florida, and the ones that haven't fled yet are trying to flee. Um, So I think we're seeing a big change, and the more that we can maximize individual liberty and flexibility, Uh, that would be beneficial. And when it comes to benefits, I mean, we talked a little bit about insurance and that's a whole separate rabbit hole conversation we can talk about. But those are separate issues besides just uh, worker freedom. Hmm. And what's the
0: status of the PRO Act at this point? I mean, I know it passed the House of Representatives in the spring. I hear murmurs of it from time to time. I know we're now entering the fall and it's going to be resurfacing. What's happening with it? So
1: it's, it's stuck in the Senate. It's not really going anywhere. Uh, but what's going on with this infrastructure bill is like everything else, a lot of people, especially progressives that see just uh, worker freedom as such a threat, they're getting everything they can in this, uh, What's it like? 3.5 trillion. I know the details are changing. Who knows? It could go up to six again because the original proposal was six, Uh, but they're getting everything they can into that. So they can't get the pro act passed because there's not even enough votes amongst uh, moderate Democrats. So what they're trying to do now is they're just cramming everything they can into this bill. And it's unclear whether or not one of the bill will pass or whether the parliamentarian that will allow this uh, bill to pass with just 50 votes plus one to get through. And there's a high chance that chunks of the Pro Act will actually be put into it. Now, maybe it's not 100% of the Pro Act, but there's enough in there to create a chilling effect to make it impossible to be an independent contractor whether you're the Santa at the mall, whether you're in the gig economy, whether you're a truck driver, whether you're in construction, whether you're just a freelance reporter. <laughs> And there's all these other, like, kind of hidden, like, hooks in there that maybe it's not spelled out in law, like under the PRO Act, but there's maybe enough government agencies and rules in place to, you know, now a business has to fight a federal bureaucracy. And no offense, I think the federal bureaucracy has unlimited money and resources versus business that's on life support after the pandemic. Let's talk about, though, how this will get
0: put into. So if it's, if the bill is, pretty much DOA in the Senate at this point. How are they able to get this in to this infrastructure bill? Can you talk more about like the components of this
1: and and the process they would be able to allow this in? Sure. So there's the reconciliation process. So it's for the most part, most bills at this point, most people can, most of those are filibusters. So you need 60 votes to pass the Senate. Uh, But under this process, you only need 50 votes plus one. Um, and there's very limited things you can pass. Usually it's dealing with budget, taxes, a handful of other issues. And if it passes the Senate and go to the House, you just need a simple majority in the House, and then it goes to Biden's desk. And it's really unclear what you can pass under this process. I mean, it could be that chunks of the Pro act are removed. But the other issue is these bills, especially what's being proposed, are so massive. I mean, how do you cut down was it like three thousand pages i forget how many pages it is so now are you going to do a line item cut out uh, i mean it's really unclear but even if you cut out parts of the you know the pro act they're putting in there may have just enough other you know hooks in there where what i'm doing or what anyone else is doing is now um either gonna be at risk of being fined. i might have to be risked at being forced in a union i don't agree with or being at risk of being of some sort of criminal act it's really unclear hmm. um and that's what's also baffling about this whole infrastructure thing is the, the debate should be over infrastructure and that's a whole separate argument but there's so much in the bill it's really not even about infrastructure anymore and it probably never was but it's pretty clear at this point even to most people that they're just trying to put in everything they can because they know probably in a few years they won't be able to pass anything remotely close to this <laughs> as they uh, what was the quote that was said um don't let a crisis go to waste. And yeah. they're, they're definitely not at this point. Yeah,
0: well, that is that is interesting because I was not aware the PRO Act was going to be shoehorned into that, so to speak. But um, tell me how you got into public policy in general.
1: Well, that's uh, really fascinating. So it actually started back in, in this little bit more of a deeper story. Uh, but I, I think we talked a little bit before you know, we like to go shooting from time to time. And there's actually a situation where I was involved in a, there's a home invasion and I used a, a firearm in self-defense. Really? Kind of, yeah. And kind of dealt with that whole crazy process, uh, of both the criminal and legal system. Uh, and this was out of California where mm. I'm from, so that was, you can imagine less than fun. Uh, but what ended up happening was that kind of in a weird way, piqued my interest in the public policy process. Cause I'm like, well, why, why am I facing criminal charges? And we got that dropped. And it's like, well, I didn't even know a civil suit was possible against a, uh, a minor, but you know, I figured that one out, but we won that case too. And then I started realizing living in California, I'm like, oh, well, I want to do this. Oh, you can't. Or, hey, you have to play barriers. And I remember even working in the food industry. This also gets to the occupational licenses, um, how to get an occupational license to do a job I was doing in the food industry that I was already doing for years. Um, so, and then I kind of just got, and I was already, you know, kind of interested in politics. I wasn't sure if I want to go to business or policy. And I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of politics and, uh, started getting involved in campaigns and elections and policy issues and just, you know, kind of had my hands in a lot of policy debates over the years.
0: Hmm. That's, um, and you moved from California to Virginia under what idea? What was the, was there a job that brought you out here?
1: Yeah. So I, I was kind of bouncing around uh, after grad school. I was kind of already bouncing around the country, just doing various contracts. Um, I, I had a high interest in Virginia. I actually used to work for the NRA, and uh, there was a contract that brought me to Northern Virginia. And then there, ha- you know, there's a lot of opportunities for people with my background. I had some friends from California, and I just like never left. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do with the NRA? Uh, I was a field rep, so I, you know, would go out there advocate for freedom. Uh, and make sure certain endorsed candidates won. Um, Did you have a good track record? I had a decent track
0: record. Yeah. uh, What do you think about how are they doing at this point? I know they're under some turmoil with the attorney general in New York. Are they recovering from that? I haven't really followed it.
1: I'm a big fan of the organization. I think they're definitely dealing with a lot of struggles. I think one thing that's definitely clear is a lot of other groups, uh, pro-gun groups, have really kind of stepped up to the plate. And I think that's kind of great with that coalition. You know, if, you know, one organization takes a hit, I mean, there's still millions of people that support freedom. So it's really just who's better at organizing. And I think everyone's just kind of come together. Interesting. It's, um,
0: and then how did you get, I know you've, you've talked about it some, but the gig economy, I mean, was it a situation where you, needed money and this was the first available thing or in a deeper sense you thought this was something that you just you wanted to do independent stuff
1: it, it was kind of more of a deeper sense it goes back to reading the four-hour work week i'm like yeah, that's a cool idea but i'm this is never gonna happen tell us about that you've made
0: a couple of references uh
1: so the four-hour work week and the whole premise behind it is how to kind of get out of that nine to five office job and it was and it's just how to maybe do, and this was radical, like when it came out, it was like, do telework or have flex time or at least be able to take time off because a lot of people are complaining. It's like, I don't even care about the money anymore. I just don't want to be in the office with the same wasteful conversations. And it's just how to be more of an efficient worker because uh, when you read through the book, most people probably get their job done a lot faster. Or maybe, you know, some weeks you work really hard and other weeks, like, do I really need to talk to the say? do I need to have the same meetings over and over again about nothing? Um, and as time went on, I was kind of between, uh, jobs, especially after one of my last campaign jobs and I took another job, didn't really like it. And then this whole like kind of Uber thing popped up and I was like really fascinated with it. I'm like, wait, I can make my own hours, make good money, even out of California. And then I realized like, wait a minute. Now, when I started doing this, I'm like, I now can start turning down job offers. I can start, you know, being more flexible if I'm in a workplace I don't like, I can just say, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving. And I think that is so valuable because I think one of the worst things to be is like, let's say you're out of college and you're, or even just any point in your life, you're just stuck in a job you don't like. And that's the whole, I think, impressive thing about the gig economy. I just actually read a an article out of Las Vegas where someone just was sick of their job, pandemic didn't make it any easier. And both uh, the husband and wife quit their job to run, uh, they bought a bunch of cars, <laughs> renting it out through Toro. And they're like, yeah, I can be my own boss. Um, And that's kind of what popped up to me. And then then I started traveling after um, I was starting to do like Uber. And I was like, well, hotels are really expensive. I don't even like them. And then Airbnb started popping up and I started staying in those. Uh, They, one, either had really cheap places or they had really awesome places, like places you would maybe never really stay or houses that you would never even think of to stay in. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, why don't more people embrace this? And people started doing it. But there's also people are saying like, hey, we want to protect you from these evils of freedom and new technology. And we want to ban that or heavily restrict it or have all sorts of barriers on that. it sounds like you do a multiple
0: amount of gig jobs. I mean, you said Uber, Lyft, and you mentioned Fiverr.
1: What's that? Uh, Fiverr is something I've played around with a little. It's kind of like a online kind of like tech thing. I haven't used that too much, but the big one I've been using a lot lately is Toro. Okay. Um, and just run out my car cause I, I travel a lot for work and I don't have to do any work really. I don't have to, you know, I'll drive for Lyft once in a while when I want to go spend money on something or, you know, just buy a motorcycle recently. So I did a few, uh, lift trips to make sure I paid for that. Uh, but I don't have to do any work. I just hand off my key. Someone drives my car, who knows where, you know, whether it's around the DC area or what one, one client drove my car. Cause I put unlimited miles on it, uh, I think drove it all the way down to like Florida or something. Um, payout was worth it. I'm, I, and the person's like, do you care? I'm like, no, I really don't. Just bring back my car in one piece. <laughs> um, what kind of protection do you have on that? Um, so I have my own insurance, but the app also has all the levels. And great thing about freedom, you can determine your own levels of protection. You can go to like the m- most advanced level protection, especially if you're renting out like a Tesla or some high-end car. I have like the medium protection um, and it works out pretty well. And I've only had one client actually did get in an accident, just scraped the side a little bit. Everything was fixed and I got more money than I anticipated. And in a few days, car was back out to rent again. <laughs> so I was like, Hey, you know, you want... <laughs> it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Um, and then another one I have is actually, uh, I actually have car ads on my car. It's like a wrap and someone just pays me uh, I, you know, a certain amount of money per month. And you know, I just drive around once in a while I, whenever I want. And the cool thing was, so I talk about like the gig economy a lot for work and I'm, I was kind of skeptical of the whole car wrap thing. And just right when the pandemic hit and someone's paying me money just for my car to sit in a driveway when I was stuck at home, couldn't go anywhere. So it was kind of a win-win and the clients were happy. And when things kind of started moving up, I started driving some more and and they were pretty happy. So
0: geez, that is, you are an enterprising guy. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who has these amount of things going on and you have a full-time job as mm-hmm. well.
1: Yeah. And uh, tell us what you do at Americans for Prosperity. So yeah, I uh, advocate for freedom, break down barriers and empower people to create communities to influence change. Uh, probably doesn't tell you much what I do, but what I do is extremely broad. So I might travel across the country. Uh, Advocating for policy issues, training people just to do basic things, whether it's public testimony, holding their leaders electable or accountable. Uh, Also, another one that comes up quite a bit is just people not being they're a little hesitant to tell their personal story. And when we're dealing with these type of policy issues, it is so important. Um, If we're we're talking about the gay economy, I tell people, like, don't go into the weeds about the numbers. I mean, I'm a weird policy person. I would love to do that all day. But that doesn't influence change. And I tell people like, tell your story about how you're just trying to rent out your bedrooms in your house to pay for medical treatment for your grandma. And it's like, oh, well, people want to hear that. I'm like, yes, that, that's that's exactly what people want to hear. Because now you want to put a representative in an awkward position. Um, and I actually did that recently out of uh, Las Vegas, the Las Vegas area, where there's a whole debate going on with the Airbnb um, situation. There's one side that wants to not only ban or heavily restrict airbnb but they want to actually local governments want to have more control to take people's homes even during a pandemic if they don't comply with the rules mm. there's the other side the debates like hey can we mitigate some of these fines and have a legal process just to engage in some type of economic freedom uh the bar is a lot lower um, and that whole debate's clashing out right now and it's amazing how aggressive a lot of the local not all of them but some of the local governments in nevada have been
0: interesting yeah. If you had to guess, you may not be the type who wants to make predictions, but if you had to make an educated guess, what do you think is going to happen with the PRO Act?
1: Uh, The PRO Act itself, I don't – this is just purely a guess. I don't think it will pass, but the infrastructure that has elements of the PRO Act or bits and pieces, huge chunks of it, it's up in the air. Honestly, like if people don't get involved in the uh, public public policy process, let people know, especially people that are on the fence – let them know how to vote. I mean, anything could happen. Uh, I mean, it's just down to a handful of people. And I, I really hope that the the bill does not pass. Yeah, if I had to guess, I think the infrastructure plan is going to pass. Um,
0: whether the elements of the pro Act are in it are a different story, but I'm almost certain they mm-hmm. have the votes to do this. They already have passed the... The bipartisan or the... Uh, well, they passed the bipartisan thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's going to happen. But I think the one with, that's through the reconciliation process. I mean, that only that also covers the yearly budget as well. If I if I understand this correctly, so I would guess that's going to pass.
1: Yeah, I guess it's just. Uh, I mean, it's up in the air. I mean, now there's some moderates are saying like, "Hey, we'll we'll start the process of discussing it," but they they flat out said if this is the final product, like it won't it won't go anywhere. Mm. Um, and I think there's enough pressure where hopefully it doesn't pass at all. Um, But we'll see. I mean, weirder things have happened, but that's why uh, we have to be involved in the process. And there's a quote I usually would say uh, when I'd give speeches, when people are like, should I get involved or not? And it's actually from a Democrat out of Wisconsin. And he says, if you're not at the dinner table, you're on the menu. So. Yeah, so usually I'm telling people I'm like, if you're really worried about this, I'm like, am like, besides just going social media, that's important, but like, you need to talk to your representative, write letters, show up to meetings, work with other coalitions, other organizations, because if you don't like what's going on, there are people that are probably working against you, and you may not like what they're what they're advocating for. Interesting. Yeah, that is that's a quote I'm going to have to remember. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> well. Uh, Thomas Bingham travels the country talking about public policy and contributes opinion columns as well. Check out some of his pieces online. Tom, thank you very much for joining me in the Nexus.
1: All right, well, thank you so much.
0: And we will be right back. I'm not sure what to make of Hurricane Ida or hurricanes in general. A strong part of me thinks that storms like Ida are so calamitous that we are past the point of no return. Then I wonder if we aren't on some grand cycle that happened thousands or maybe millions of years ago, and this is just another cycle that we are experiencing. The earth will reset and get back to normal at some point. Let's break down Hurricane Ida for a minute and examine how crazy it is. The storm took a traditional path and barreled over Louisiana and Mississippi and caused a decent amount of destruction but nothing on the scale of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Not so bad, right? Not so fast. In ways that still stretch my high school science knowledge and confuse the hell out of me, how does a hurricane that was trending west somehow gain steam and then flatten New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, seemingly skipping several states and killing more people in the Northeast than in Louisiana or Mississippi? Is this normal? Part of me processes this in a way the media wants me to process it. Climate change is so out of control that freakish storms like Ida are wreaking havoc in ways that wouldn't have happened 30 or 40 years ago. And havoc it wreaked. My brother was driving in Hillsborough, New Jersey last week, and the tornado that came out of nowhere mixed with the ferocious rainstorm caused his car to spin around and then for it to float. For some act of divine intervention, my bro didn't get scooped up in the tornado, nor did his car get totaled. I really can't tell what would have been worse. But is all this unprecedented? Are weather patterns truly changing? I suppose I should heed the word of the many, many climate scientists out there who say what we are seeing now is a direct result of our terrible choices as earthlings. Okay, let's say all of this is true. The thing that no one ever seems to say is, what if everything is too late? That the climate damage was baked in by the terrible economic choices made since the Industrial Revolution, and we are just straight up fucked. That the 21st century is simply the result of bad policy made decades or even hundreds of years ago, and there's no turning back. Kind of scary, right? Sort of the pronouncement that would lead you to find the razor blades in the medicine cabinet, huh? The whole premise of, quote, fighting climate change has been... We must stop what we are doing right now, or we won't have any chance of future generations living in any kind of safe environment. But what if there is no chance of reversing anything, and we are in an escapable slide into ruin? From a public relations standpoint, the messaging of it's too late, batten down the hatches, just doesn't work. No one is going to stop anything they're doing if there's no chance to save the environment. No incentive to not dump in the rivers, streams, marshlands, or pumping every possible drop of oil out of the ground. We should be protecting the environment not because of future generations, but because it's simply the right thing to do. Our planet is a temple we should not be abusing, just like we shouldn't be abusing our bodies. Sure, our Earth may be irrevocably damaged by climate change. Who really knows? In the meantime, I'm in favor of not politicizing the environment and shaming people who don't comply with our wishes, but simply resetting and trying to do things because they are right and make our world safer and cleaner to live in. It's obvious that smog in Los Angeles was terrible in the 1960s and 70s, yet reduced emissions in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s eliminated much of the smog and made the air cleaner and more visible for hundreds of miles. Isn't that enough of a reason to do well? Must we keep adding the politicized climate change to every debate? The waterways around New York City used to be incredibly polluted in the middle to last third of the 20th century. So much of the fauna escaped the area because of the toxic pollution. Yet the city and federal government famously cleaned up the area because it was the right thing to do and species like river otters came back. I've seen them up close. It's an environmental triumph. My grand idea here is to focus on things that are doable, on things that are right in front of you and consider them victories. Are we going to force China to cut emissions and join the rest of the world in being good global citizens? Probably not, but we can affect change in our own country and with our allies. It's initiatives like these that allow us to feel pride in ourselves and not become so depressed over the impregnable force that is climate change. I don't think we could change hurricanes becoming freakishly massive in scope, but we sure can make our drinking water safer in Michigan. Think locally. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide and leave a review too. We will see you next time and be well.